Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Today, we are talking about sex on The Stacks, but not in the way you might think. Our guest is Angela Chen, journalist and author of ACE, What Sexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. In the book, Angela sheds light on what it means to be asexual and the many intersections that play into that sexual identity. As a reminder, everything we discuss on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love the Stacks and want to show your support, consider joining the Stacks Pack. Those are folks who contribute monthly to the podcast on Patreon and earn perks like our virtual book club and shout outs on this show. I couldn't make the stacks without the generosity of the stacks pack. So if you want to be a part of the fabric of this show, head to patreon.com slash the stacks. This week, I'm saying an extra big thank you to our newest members, Bianca Kustakis, Lauren, Becky Higgins, Anna, Megan Moltrup, L. Hunter, Ryan Miller, Hannah Cross, Megan, Courtney Hurley, Stephanie Sake, Lizzie F., Jessica Layfeld, and Teddy Norton Riley. Thank you all so much. I could not make this show without you. All right, let's do it. My conversation with Angela Chen. Okay, everybody, I'm so excited. I am here today with Angela Chen. She's the author of a brand new book called Ace, and it's all about asexuality. And if you're anything like me, it was a big learning experience. So Angela, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, You reached out to me about coming on the show and I was like, this is 100% the perfect kind of book for this podcast. So I am so grateful that you reached out. We always start here in about 30 seconds or so. Can you tell us about your book? Yeah. So it's really about what all of us, regardless of how we um, identify, can learn from the ACE experience. You know, part of it is what does it mean to be asexual? What is that like? Because there's so many misconceptions. But the other part of it, the core of it is really showing all of this, this knowledge is not just relevant to you if you happen to be asexual. It's relevant to you no matter how you identify, no matter what kind of relationship you want. And I don't think people realize how relevant asexuality is to everyday life. You're so 100% right. It was one of those things where I was like, oh, I'm going to pick up this book and I'm going to learn about other people. And of course, I picked up the book and I was like, wow, I'm learning so much about myself. I'm seeing myself. I'm seeing where I land on this spectrum 
as opposed to I'm looking out and seeing other people more clearly. I felt like I could see myself more clearly and other people more clearly and my relationship to them. So I think that that's what makes this book so special is that you're teaching your audience about other people and their experiences, but you're also putting that in context for us, I think is another way of saying it. So I want to know where you got the idea to write this book and why you decided to tell this story now. So the short answer to why I decided to write the book is because I am asexual. It was very personal. And around the time that I realized I was asexual, I was like, why does no one else know about this? Why did I have to dive into the internet to understand myself? And I wanted to be able to have these conversations with others. And each time I did, you know, conversations like, what is the difference between romantic attraction and platonic attraction? Or why is it that we center sexuality? These were fascinating conversations that people wanted to be part of, but there would be so much setting up, you know, it would like the first like half of the conversation would be me being like, okay, there's this thing called asexuality. And it, educating them. And I felt like you couldn't get to the deep stuff without me going through this one-on-one spiel. So I wanted to kind of put that into the world because I felt like there was so much to be gained. And it just really helped me understand myself. And it helped me see the world in a different way. And I thought that was really valuable and should be more accessible because there's not that much writing on asexuality. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm going to just keep saying this. I learned so much. I learned so much. I guess I, I should have started here for people who are listening, who haven't read your book yet, who kind of are wondering what asexuality is. And and I'd love for you to kind of just explain what it is, but also explain kind of how you separated sexuality from desire. From, you just kind of like give that 101 spiel if you can, just so that we're all kind of using the same vocabulary moving forward. So the way we say it is I feel like asexuality has a branding problem because it covers such a wide range of experiences. And some of those experiences include positive sexual experiences. So it's kind of like, why would you call these people asexual? That's not how we use language. So on you know one level, I understand why there's all this confusion. Basically, asexuality, an asexual person means someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction, which seems to make sense, right? But then you start thinking, what does it mean to not experience sexual attraction? What I thought it meant for most of my life, and what I think most people think it means, is that you're repulsed by sex. You just don't want to have sex. It's not appealing to you. And I get that. But that's not actually what it means. It's possible to not experience sexual attraction, but also not be repulsed by it. Like, you're just indifferent to it. The same way that, you know, there's some foods that you're indifferent to, but maybe you eat them because you're bored. You know, there's so many reasons to have sex that have nothing to do with actual sexual attraction. Like, you're sad or you're bored or you want to feel close to someone. And I think that hides for many people um, what their actual experience is. Because we really, really just think that sexual attraction is the same as wanting to have sex, is the same as libido, is the same as finding someone pretty, is the same as wanting to date someone. All of those are different, but most of the time they come together. So we don't think more closely about what is life like when you actually separate and think, can you have one without the other? And what would that mean for our relationships and how we see ourselves? Right. There's so much unpacking in this book of what we think goes together. And you talk about that a lot in the book, like these two things, you you often go together, but it doesn't mean that they have to go together. So that can be, you know, libido and attraction, but they don't actually have to go together. And so I kept thinking to my, I kept stopping throughout my reading being like, where do I, how do I feel about this? How do I feel about that? And what I'm curious is you're a journalist and you, you're, you know, your other job is writing 
quote unquote objectively, which is something that we talk a lot about on this show, which is a whole other conversation. But you are part of Ace. You're part of this book. You get very personal about your own desire and your own sex life and your own feelings and relationships. So I'm curious how that felt as a journalist. It felt good and bad in different ways. So the fact that I'm ace, that definitely helped me with the reporting component. You know, I could go to people and be like, hey, listen, I'm ace. I get it. We're not go- you're not going to have to explain asexuality to me. I'm not going to ask these invasive, um, semi-offensive questions that journalists sometimes ask. That really helped to build trust. And I think that helped me get sources who were vulnerable with me, which made the book better. On the other hand, I think that maybe because I'm a journalist, in some sense, I didn't really want to write about myself that much. I felt like it was necessary, but I felt like it'd be much more comfortable to just report other people's experiences. But one of my strengths and why I thought I was a good person to write it is because I could speak from my experience. And I could talk about, for example, some of the ambiguities and ambivalence I felt toward the community. And I couldn't do that without saying, here's who I am. Here's where I come from. Here's my biases. Here's what I'm trying to work through. But that was different. It was very vulnerable in a way that is not the case for a lot of my other reporting. Right. So I keep saying that I learned so much. I learned so much. And one of the things as a Black woman and in this moment of the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of people discovering racism and anti-Black racism and injustice and all this stuff, one of the refrains that we hear all the time is, don't ask your Black friends to teach you. Don't ask people to teach you. And this sort of comes up in the book, but I'm very curious. So if you're ace, you're asexual. If you experience sexual desire, you're called an aloe. And so I'm curious how you felt about writing this book that is teaching people and like doing that sort of labor. Obviously, it you were paid to write a book. It was There was a book deal. So it was labor for you, literally. But I'm just curious kind of that balance between writing something for aces and then also writing something that's to teach aloes who have no clue. That's a really interesting question, something I thought about a lot. In some ways, it's easy to say the book has two audiences, right? One is aces and one is aloes. But I think that the audiences are more mixed than you might think. Because there's so much, so many misconceptions about what it means to be asexual, I think there are a lot of people out there who think that they're allosexual, but after reading the book, have this understanding of, oh, I might actually be ace. You know, just in the time since I published an excerpt, people have started reaching out to me and being like, oh, this matches with my experience is making me question my my identity. So just to say that those two, you know, groups are not a binary, just right. as, you know, those experiences are not a binary. But I, I am conflicted about this question of explaining, right? And I think I talk about it in one of these chapters yeah. in which... Um, you know, I'll talk to other aces and they'll be like, oh, thank you for writing this book. This is necessary. I want this book that I can just give to my dad. And, you know, instead of having these awkward conversations, he can just read it on himself. But at the same time, I'm also aware that I think any marginalized community, you always feel like you're looking at yourself from the outside. You know, like I know I always feel like the white gaze is upon me and the male gaze. And it's taken a long time for me to be like, what if I don't actually need to explain myself? What Mm -hmm. if I don't actually care what they think about? And so that has been something that goes over my, in my mind. I ultimately think it's good because I think that once people understand and many people are well-meaning, you know, they're not malicious. They're just less, you know, educated on these topics that will ultimately be good for aces. But I also think this is just the beginning. You know, I hope that future books, will be able to be more aggressive. What I mean by that is that I think just by nature, I'm 
I try to be really empathetic mm. and I try to be really reasonable, quote unquote. And there were times in which when I was writing the book, I was like, you know, maybe I could be a little more bombastic. Mm. You know, maybe I could be like, fuck aloe people. And that's not what I think. But I also felt like I couldn't say that because I was still trying to get the aloe audience, you know? And so I think that in the future, once we get past the level which we're on with this book, I hope other aces are able to say these polemic, polemic, bombastic things that I felt like I couldn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally. I mean, I can relate to that. I'm sure you can relate to that on many levels and parts of your life and your identity. But I think, you know, we, we hear women, yeah. we hear women say that a lot to men or people who don't identify as male saying like, fuck men, fuck straight men, fuck cis men, like mm-hmm. that energy of like, you've, you've held us back. You've, you've been unfair, unkind, ungracious. And this is now my response. And I understand that in the beginning, you know, like my, for my mom's generation, when she was one of the first women in the workplace, she wasn't able to have that energy. But now, you know, we're able to have that energy. So you're kind of setting up that next level of ACE, ACE activism, ACE education, all of that stuff, which I, I, I mean, I definitely got that sense in your book is like, this is very ground level and I was excited. I'm excited to do more reading. I'm excited to learn more. Yeah. And also because, so this book is so intersectional. I think you did such a fantastic job of kind of unpacking, if you will, the different intersections of ace and aloes and race and gender and representation and politics and all of this stuff. One of the things that you talk about is that sex is political and especially for people who identify as women it's a way for them to perform their politics. And I'm just curious if you could kind of talk about that because I found that fa- section fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, sex is political. Women are shamed, right, for our desires, especially if you're not straight, especially if you're not cis. And so I think that, you know, you try to correct that unfair injustice saying women should be able to do what men do, right? Many women are genuinely are repressed and aren't in touch with their sexuality because of shame. We need to correct that. But I think that at times the idea has mutated and it's become this idea, not just that, you know, if you want to have sex, you should be able to talk about it in no double standards, but this idea that if you love sex and you loudly love sex, that makes you more fun and it makes you more feminist Mm. than otherwise. And that if you don't love sex, then it's, it has to be because of the patriarchy. It can't be because of anything else. And I want to be careful to say, as I say in the book, you know, the world is a big and complicated place. Sex negativity totally exists. I'm not trying to ignore that. And I also don't think that anyone explicitly would say anything or I don't think any feminist would explicitly say something like, oh, you know, people, women who have more sex are more feminist. Like that's not right. Of course, that's not an actual stance, but it's still like kind of a feeling you get because I think there is a connection of sexuality with being liberated, with being cool, with being bold and brave. And otherwise, you're just kind of passive and not there, not taking advantage. And I think that's something that does a disservice to a lot of people. And I don't even mean ace people, anyone who might just feel lower desire. I think you ingest that message and you're like, oh, am I am I actually repressed? Do I need to be doing more? And it really makes your sexuality um maybe more of a source of contention than it should be because sexual variation exists people can be less interested in sex and for whatever reason and that doesn't mean they can't be radical or feminist you know it doesn't have to have that connection 
Yeah. Yeah. That section on sex being political is just fascinating. And, and you talk a lot about compulsory, compulsory sex, compulsory desire. What is Compulsory. compulsory sexuality. I was like, wait, I know the first word. <laughs> compulsory sexuality and this idea that like everything has to be, you have to want to have sex to be like normal or to fit in. And and, and I just, ugh, it's so, 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 so good. And speaking of that, you also talk about, so you talk about aces who ha- who are people who do not feel sexual desire, are not interested in sex in this, in, in, not necessarily at all, but in different, for different reasons, not because they're not interested in sex because of desire. But then you also talk about incels. And I found that part so incredible because I have a slight obsession with incels because how could you not? They're terrifying. And um, if you don't know what an incel is, they're involuntary celibate. So um, I think one of the most famous ones would be the the guy who um, did the shooting in Isla Vista, California. Um, and we won't say his name, but that gentleman, um, and I just, I would love for you to talk about the difference between those things, because I think you're right. You said, talk about this in the book. I know you're right. There's so much negativity around asexuality and people who are aces who've chosen, you know, to live as aces and to, to be open as aces. And a lot of times the response is, oh, you just haven't met the right person or, oh, you're, you because you can't get any or whatever that looks like. So I'd love for you to just to talk about the difference between aces and incels. Right. So like we said, incels are usually men, you know, who are involuntarily celibate. And, you know, like I write in the book, like I get it. Like if you want to have sex and you feel like you've been rejected, that's hard. I yeah. think most people can empathize with that. But they also are entitled. They become misogynistic because they see sex as so important. There was this great interview I had with someone and he said something like, it's not about sex, right? If it was really about like sexual gratification, they could just move on to increasingly elaborate forms of wanking. You know, he was British. So, you know, it's not about, you know, orgasm. It's about the fact that, you know, sex, especially for men, is so tied to status and being able to get some. And so they become obsessed with status. What they really want is that is because we, you know, we live in this society where male status and bonding is still very much connected to your ability to talk dirty about usually women. So on the other hand, ace men are often considered, you know, ball cells, voluntary incels. And because of the same assumption that, you know, real men uh, bond by talking sexually, they're ostracized too. You know, they're ace men who say that they pretend to have crushes. So that's something to talk to other men about, or they have unwanted sex because it's just what's expected. And sometimes, you know, them being ace makes them question their gender. You know, one person said, at first, I wonder if I was trans because it's women who are supposed to be disinterested mm-hmm. in sex, not men. And they've even told me that some people think they're actually incels. You know, they're secretly incels. They just don't want to be associated with incels, but they're just making it up because they can't get any. So it's so interesting to me how these, like one group is not really interested in sex, but they feel this pressure. And the other group is totally interested in sex. And it's the same structure that's kind of created the hardships for them in many ways. Yeah. God, it's so interesting. We talk about throughout the book representation and especially in popular culture, books, films, TV shows, and you kind of go through and you talk about the few representations of ace people in in popular culture. Do you see there being a trend towards something more positive, inclusive? I know that you sort of talk about um, the 
friendship between Meredith and Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy as sort of being, um, you talk about them being in a queer platonic friendship. And I'm just curious, like, I don't know, how can we get this to be something that is that we are seeing and understanding because you're you're right that the impl- the understanding now is that something's wrong with people or they're they're traumatized or they're ill or they're disabled or something like that and it's not something that you know we're seeing in just like a that person's ace like let's carry on with the the story i think that stories don't exist in a vacuum of course and right. it'll be really hard to have good Ace representation in fiction when the nonfiction, the you know IRL understanding isn't there. Mm. So, for example, you know there are ace people who are disabled and whose asexuality is related to having experienced sexual trauma. And um, one example that I think of, in, in real life, I mean, and then in fiction, one example I think of is Jude from A Little Life. Mm. Did you read A Little Life? I did. Right. So, you know, he could probably be described as asexual and claimed as asexual, and that is related to him to his traumatic past and what happened to him in the past. But the issue is if the author had explicitly listed him as asexual and in this, in this environment where there's so little understanding of all the nuances of asexuality, I think someone would read that and be like, Oh, I understand what asexuality is. It's some caused by disability. And that can be true, but that's not always true, you know? So because the, uh, because it's so thin, every time there's any example, people will think that is the example of what it means, you know? Right. So there's another book um, that came out in the past couple of years from a Japanese author called Convenience Store Woman. Yep. And this, yeah, and she's kind of like a quirky, probably asexual, possibly neurodivergent character. And so I'm sure that people who read that and heard it being described as an asexual character, they might be like, oh, asexuality means that you're kind of quirky and you know, you, you also don't want relationships. There's so, asexuality is so broad, but there's so little, but until we have the structure of really understanding it, what it is in the real world, I think it'll be really hard for us to get really nuanced perspectives because there's this danger in any one aspect of asexuality becoming too pronounced. And that's a result of just not having enough exploration in general. Right. I'm gonna ask you to, to teach me something if that's all right. Of course. I. The one one thing that I didn't quite understand, and I would love for you just to explain, is that you talk about how aces are not necessarily part of LGBTQ+. And I'd love for you just to explain why not necessarily. And, I, and I'm sure that depends on the cer- certain aces might identify as as part of that and certain might not. And obviously there's intersections where you could be... Um, you could be trans and be asexual. So uh, I'm just talking about the asexual part of it, but that was a little confusing to me. And I think I understood it, but I would love to hear you in your expertise. Absolutely. And I honestly think that's a place where I could have explained things better. So I think that aces absolutely are queer and absolutely are part of the LGBT plus umbrella. But what I meant to get at is that there is this is still under discussion in a way that it's not under discussion that if you're bisexual, you're queer, right? right? Because there are people who think that if you are ace and heteromantic, I mean that you might be asexual, but you're so romantically attracted to the opposite gender, then you pass and then you have privilege and therefore you shouldn't be considered ace, especially because you don't necessarily need to come out in the mm. same way that other people might not. I don't agree with this. You know, asexuality can be called the invisible orientation. And the truth is there are many benefits um, 
of this invisibility because invisibility can protect, but mm -hmm. there's also invisibility can also harm, right? You no, know, asexuality is still not that understood. So I fully think that aces are queer, but that was mostly a way to nod at the fact that this discussion is still kind of hap happening more broadly. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And mm -hmm. also one of the things that you talk about is that, that being asexual can be a temporary identity, which I found to be really interesting because that seems very different than than people who are uh, identify as queer um, in in other aspects of their sexuality and identity. So I'm wondering, is that something is that something that is like largely accepted in the ace community that it could be something that's temporary, or is that something that's kind of being worked through? I don't know. I don't know what the question is, but I just I found that part interesting, and I want you to say more. Is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely, I think it's. I think that's reflective of my own approach towards sexuality. You know, so when people were trying to define asexuality for the purposes of scientific research, you they were like, oh, it has to be lifelong or, oh, it can't be caused by anything else. But ACEs have really tried to be fluid. Mm. And I think in general, I think it's good if we see identities as more fluid. You know, right now we think of them as like, I am straight. That's what I am. And then you start questioning, like, what if I'm not? You know, like I think right. people do go out and it can be any orientation, whether it's heterosexuality, homosexuality, so on. I think people change throughout their lives and there can be room for us to explore that, you know, without any other um, experience being fake. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. someone is um, identifies as lesbian and then um, falls in love with a man, that doesn't mean she was a fake lesbian. Like there's right. all of these nuances right. here. And that's kind of what I mean. And what I also mean is that especially because asexuality is question such a large extent you know aces feel like we have to dig our feet in and be like oh no you know i've always been this way that creates this pressure that i think can prevent aces from exploring like i think that people should explore and question their identities as long as it's what they want to do you know like i think that if you realize you're not ace that's totally fine you know it's not like it's it's not like you're being exiled or anything but i think that um so i don't think it's good to have your identity be so ossified in a way that prevents you from exploring what you might want. Like, for example, I interviewed someone, and I don't think this made it into the book, but they um, had a friend with benefits, and but and they liked to fool around, but then they would get nervous that, like, maybe fooling around meant that they weren't ace after all, or maybe, like, it was it would feel threatened with their identity if they mm. became too aroused during an encounter. And my approach to that is, you know, even if you discover that you do experience some sexual attraction, if that feels good for you, that's fine. You know, like things can be fluid. You can explore. That's, I think that's what I meant. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of, I mean, I think I thought that's what you were getting at also. And I found that to be interesting. And then you also say that it can be spurred on those changes can be spurred on by outside life events as well. If something were to happen to you or you were experience, you know, not necessarily a trauma, but just something that changed, shift your life. If, if your mental health isn't doing great for, you could experience, you know, phases of asexuality or or not you know i just i thought it was interesting and i really liked that because i did feel like it was inclusive and it allowed it gave people the space to really think about oh okay if it's not something that i have to be all the time maybe i am feeling a lack of desire or maybe i've never really you know i just i liked i like that you did that absolutely you know, I think in the big, I, I talk about this because I think it's like one of the most contested parts of asexuality is that in the beginning, people were, were much more um, focused on gatekeeping. You know, like if you're disabled, you're not asexual. If you were um, sexually assaulted, you're not asexual because you don't want 
people to think that, you know, asexuality is always linked with, you know, these external causes. But I think the importance of asexuality is just showing that you can have a good life even if you are asexual and there's nothing wrong with it. And therefore, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter why you're asexual. You know, I don't think aces say that you must never try to regain sexual desire. I don't think aces say that um, if you mourn, you know, you're the loss of your sexual desire, that, that that's bad. I think it's right. just saying that like another way is possible. You know, it's not all lost. And I think that's very positive. Yeah, that's so great. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. All right. I want to talk about a little bit about the book itself. I'm curious when you started writing this book, if where you started is still in the book or if things changed in your journey of doing the research and the interviewing and, you know, talking about yourself publicly, et cetera. I think the structure of the book may be changed. I think most of the topics um, that I had a vision for the book are still there because they're the same topics that I started thinking about you know, years ago when I was realizing that I was asexual. I think one thing that's constrained the book is the fact that, as we talked about before, it really is still one of the first books on the topic, and it's the first reported book on the topic. And so there was this real need to be, to get everything right and to touch on as many topics as possible. Um, you know, like, realistically, no book can or should cover everything. You know, that's just, that's just not right. what it is. But the other reality is that when you're part of a marginalized group, I don't think the publishers want to buy or you know sell that many books on the topic. And so as I was writing, I was like, I definitely have to talk about disability. I definitely have to talk about um, you know consent, which are all things I'm happy to talk about. But if those pressures weren't there, it would have been a different book. I think it would have been maybe a narrower book. And I think this is a very broad one. Like no book is perfect. And I think the critique that I hear most often is people saying, oh, I learned a lot. Um, it was a little academic or it was a little dense. Or maybe it was a little clunky. And I'm like, I totally get that. And some of that is just 
me and my process. I'm kind of an academic person. And some of that is the very specific pressures of like, you have to address as many facets of basic experience as you can. Yeah, I, I, I do think it's a, it's an overview. It is a broad book, but what is nice is it's not that long of a book. Like you, like you get into a lot of stuff and I think you pique a lot of interest, but it's not like 700 pages, you know, it's, it's like what, 200 or something. It's like nice, Mm -hmm. tight, it's nice and tight. And it made me want to read more and it excited me without feeling like I, I didn't, I didn't feel bogged down. I also am a huge fan of nonfiction, so I don't know, but I, I thought it was, I thought it was tight. I thought it was good. How do you like to write? Where are you? What are you eating, drinking, watching, or listening to? Um, how many hours a day? Where are you? Kind of paint the picture of Angela's writing experience. So the context of the book is that I wrote the entire book when I was holding down a full-time journalism job um, as a science journalist, and I didn't take book leave, which is something that I very much regret. Um, I think that, you know, publishing is an industry and there's structures in the industry. And to be honest, I was a little scared of taking book leave. No one at my company had taken it before. And I think part of me was like, what if they... I don't know, take it in retrospect, like, what are they going to do? Take away my job? They can't do that. Right. But I was afraid to ask for book leave. So if there's one thing that I do differently, it was that because I, I think afterward, I, there was a lot of time I spent kind of mourning being like, if I taken book leave, the process would have been different. I would have had more time, et cetera. Wait, so what is book leave? I've never heard of that term before. Um, book leave is um, if you have a full-time job, usually in journalism, then they'll give you some time off unpaid, like, I don't know, 12 weeks or something. And then you, mm. and to write your book and then you come back almost, I think nearly every full-time journalist, especially who does a reported book like this does that. So because I didn't do that, I essentially wrote the entire, wrote reported research, all the book, um, on nights and weekends. Oh my gosh. So of course you can imagine if I took book leave, I would have had more time to right. do this, not on top of another writing job, but to actually answer your question. So basically I'd wake up at like five thirty in the morning and then write for a couple hours. Um, and I would write on the weekends for maybe three hours every Saturday and Sunday. And it's funny because I have friends who are freelance writers who are working on books and have very different processes. They're the kind of people who are like, I'll write for 10 hours and then I'll just fall into a hole and I won't look at it again for three days. But I'm not like that. Like I'm a grinder, you know, okay. so I use Pomodoro's. I write in 25 minute increments. I track everything. Um, like I'm a very methodical writer. And I think that's that sense of every day I'm working on it and it's building and it's going to become something was really helpful. Like I would love to be like, I'm an artist. And when the muse strikes, you know, I'm going to be able to sit with some tea and do it, but it's like, no, I have a day job. You know, I, I have to do this. And I think my training as a journalist has helped because as a journalist, I write so much. Like you can't be precious. You have to hit the deadlines. And so that background definitely helped me with the process of writing the book. And what about your setup? Um, so to be honest, my setup, because it's like five in the morning, I would just write in bed. Like I would just take my, um, laptop from, you know, the floor and write it until it's time to go to work. Um, I really think that writing a book forced me to be honest about my capabilities because at first I was like, oh, I'll just write in the evenings. Cause I don't want to get up at five 30. Um, but in the evenings, my brain would just be so stupid and yeah. everything I wrote it would be like <laughs> you know it'd be worse than nothing and so finally I was like I have to acknowledge that I I'm not one of those people who can write for hours and hours that I can't write in the evenings even though it's a quote-unquote better time so there was a lot of renegotiating my own relationship with my limits yeah and then this is important to me and probably only me but what about snacks and beverages can you write with 
with refreshments or no? I, because it's in the morning, I usually just drink water. And okay. so there was none of that. Although what, I think it's dangerous because I can just snack forever. And at the end, I wouldn't be able to tell you what I eat. So <laughs> I try not to do that. I just am like, passionate about snacks. So I ask everybody. It's like the only question I think that I've asked every single guest on the show pretty much because I love a snack. What about the sorts of things that you were reading yourself or watching or listening to while you were writing this book? I, well, a lot of it was just research for the book because it's nonfiction, you know, so I was reading a lot of like um, anthologies, like academic papers about asexuality, books on the history of sexuality. There was a lot of panic then because the history of sexuality is such a huge field and there's so mm. many academics. There was that sense, how am I going to do that? Um, I'm trying to remember what fiction did I read during that time? I think around the time I was reading The Idiot by Ella Bachman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that actually influenced the book itself, but I have like strong memories of like writing the book and then reading and then reading hers. So I guess that would count. Okay. And then what about how long it took you to write the book? Um, they, Beacon, my publisher gave me a year. And I took a little bit longer than that. So I would say probably like a year and four months, something like that. You know, again, working on nights and weekends. That was the process. And that's including all the research and the interviewing and everything. Yeah, including, yeah, full. Wow. That's pretty fast. It is fast. I think most people get two years, maybe more. I know people who have gotten, well, I think they probably just missed their deadline. But, you know, I know people (laughs) who've um, had much longer to write. But like I said... I think that my journalism background helped me because I was used to writing fast. But honestly, I do wish I had more time. Yeah. How did you know you wanted to write, that you wanted to be a writer? I thought that I wanted to be a novelist. And I actually still think that I wanted to be a novelist. You know, I think back and it was it was always so natural to me because I think it's how I process my emotions. I think there's a discussion going on, you know, about whether writing is really therapeutic and there's a lot of nuance there. But as a kid, um, I would feel... I would feel something like just a lot of emotion. And until I wrote it down, I wouldn't be able to tell you how I felt. And as an adult, I think I'm very emotionally aware. I'm like, that's frustration. That's envy. And mm. I think that comes from writing it down. And I also remember as a kid, and this is does not, it's not flattering. <laughs> I have a very strong memory of being like, when I write novels, I will be able to get revenge on all these people because I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll like make them characters in my novels. I don't know who they were, probably like a teacher who oh was gosh. not nice to me so I don't think that's my I don't think that's my um you know my motivation now but it was actually quite present anyways I always wanted to write novels and then I became a journalist originally because I thought you know this is a writing job that will pay me money you know until I can sell my novel and then I grew to love journalism just for the sake of journalism but one of the reasons that I recently went freelance from journalism a few months ago is because I decided I really wanted to take the time to try to write fiction and try to do more like essays and such. So Amazing. It's, it's still in flux. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is, do you know what comes next for you for your writing? I think definitely it's moving a little bit away from journalism. And I think that's hard for me because, you know, first of all, journalism is what I know how to do, but also because... As a journalist, a lot of a lot of your work is tied to productivity, right? You know, if you can get a lot right. of articles out. And so I became a freelancer in part so I could focus on longer term projects like books and so on. But it's really hard to have 
the discipline and faith to work on something for a long time that no one can see and to you know not get feedback on it and also to not constantly be pitching so I've been trying to teach myself to step away from that and really evaluate what I want like if what I want is to spend my time writing longer form stuff I should spend my time writing longer form stuff and Instead of spending my time trying to replicate my previous life as a journalist just mm. without an actual company backing me. Right. right. That's so interesting. Okay. There's one more thing in the book that I wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up. And I don't even know if I'm going to say this right, but hermeneutical justice, injustice. Can you explain that? Because that is a phrase that I have needed to know pretty much my whole life. Yeah, I love that phrase. You know, every woman that I've spoken to or has read that part of the book, when they read that phrase, they were like, yes, you know, that that speaks to me. So basically, hermeneutical injustice is the harm that comes when you're denied this really relevant information to help you make sense of the world. And you're denied that information because you're marginalized. So the example I use in the book is, you know, let's say your college roommate posted on Facebook that she's going to be in your town and you missed it. And you're like, oh, that sucks. You know, I wish I'd known that she was in town. But that's not hermeneutical injustice. That's just bad luck. You didn't get the information you needed, but that's bad luck. Hermeneutical injustice is, for example, before there was a concept of sexual harassment, you know, all of this, what we would call sexual harassment is going on, but but people didn't have the words for it, didn't have the phrase for it. And the reason for that is because women weren't powerful enough to be setting the discussion, you know? And so not understanding the concept of hermeneutical injustice, it's denying you a framework to understand the world. You have these things happening to you and they're harming you, but you don't have the language to parse it through, to connect with others, to organize. And you don't have the language because you are marginalized. So hermeneutical injustice is a word that comes up a lot in asexuality. Because a lot of people, once they realize they're asexual, they're like, oh, now that I know that I'm asexual, I know that I'm not broken or that I don't need to be fixed. It gives them a language with which to describe themselves and find other people. But before that, they were just like, I have these experiences that people are telling me is not normal. But, you know, it doesn't give them a way to understand themselves. Mm -hmm. And that lack of understanding is because there's not enough discussion about asexuality. And so the cycle perpetuates. Yeah, yeah. God, that's I, just so good. And I never heard it. And now I'm going to use it every day. I'm going to be telling people about hermeneutical injustice. The other thing that we didn't talk about that I feel like we should just spend a second on is consent, because that is it comes up in the book. And I mean, consent is so huge. I think in America, which is all that I can speak to and in the culture that I understand, we're not teaching people about consent in any meaningful way, truly, like it's so cursory and lackluster and just garbage. And so I love that you kind of dive into levels of consent and what what enthusiastic consent looks like, but also what ju- what just like, yeah, I'm down. And and I and I we t- we're talking about it obviously in a sexual way, but I, my personal feeling is that we need to be talking about consent in all sorts of other ways too. Um, from a very young age, you know, I I need a I need to do a whole podcast called the Consent Show where I just have people on and I ask them different ways that they can and can't consent to things. But I just love for you to talk a little bit about consent. Absolutely. So there's a few different issues that come up with consent and asexuality. One has to do with consent in relationships. You know, I think almost everyone agrees that 
if there's a stranger who asks you to sleep with them, you don't have to, you can, you can say no, no matter what, you know, like maybe the hottest stranger ever, maybe they're saying you don't have to, but in a relationship, that sense of consent is taken away. There really is a strong belief that entering a relationship means that you owe the other person sex. And that is something that I think we're still grappling with. And I firmly believe that you, that is not true that you do not give up consent when you're in a relationship. I believe that you should negotiate it. I believe that they are free to leave the relationship if you know that's a deal breaker for them. Their preferences matter too. But I don't believe this kind of unspoken assumption that you owe your partner sex without talking about it. So, and that's one thing that affects ACEs a lot is that this idea that they felt like they had, they didn't have the good enough reason. They couldn't just say, I don't want to. They had to say, I don't want to because even though I don't want to should be the end all and be all and, you know, all you need to say, no matter the circumstance. So that's one way. But the other way in which you're kind of talking about is that we think about consent as this binary, right? And then we often think, you know, the only real consent is enthusiastic consent when you want, you know, consent because you personally are horny. But where does that leave aces who do have sex? I think that almost implies that aces aren't able to consent, which makes, which infantilizes aces, right? right? Like there's levels of it, you know, there's enthusiastic consent, like I want sex because I'm horny. And then there's like willing consent, like, you know, maybe I don't like want sex for myself, but I, I love you and it's not going to harm me. And so I'm happy to do it. There's all of these nuanced levels and we don't talk about that enough. We really have this very black and white way of thinking about how consent works and who's responsible and and often consent is treated like a contract you know mm. it's like either we're going to try to hash this out beforehand but that's not how sex works things change in the moment and people aren't always blameless there's so many other ways to think about consent in the way that we have been talking about it i should also mention that it's the sex researcher Emily Nagoski, who came up with this um, kind of more nuanced model of consent that involves like enthusiastic consent, willing co consent, coerced consent, and so on. So shout out to her. Yeah. Shout out, Emily. Okay. So I just have a, a few more last little questions for you. One of them is also very important to me, which is what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? God, there's got to be one, but nothing is coming to mind. I think at one point it might have been something like epidemiology, but that's just not a problem anymore because okay. that's the only word I see anymore. But I'm going <laughs> to go with that. <laughs> so obviously you're a good speller is what you're saying. In general, I'm a good speller. Okay. We are very different in this sense because <laughs> every word is a word I cannot spell, including epidemiology. So I'll just add it <laughs> to my personal list. For people who love this book, for people who love ACE, what are some other books you might recommend to them? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the same subject matter, but it could be books that your book is in conversation with, or you just feel like is a nice fit, similar style, tone, whatever. Well, so this is the first thing that came to mind is a book, Big Friendship, that just came out. Yes. So when this episode airs two weeks ago, I will have had Aminatu and Anne on the podcast. So people will be familiar with Big Friendship. Okay, perfect. So, you know, maybe this is a cop out because Anne and Aminatu blurb the book, but I think they blurb the book in part because the books are in conversation with each other, because one of the chapters is about relationships and the way that, um, you know, romantic relationships are so central when that doesn't have to be the case. And I think their book is really so much about that idea that the relationship in your life that can change you forever and change your values and that takes just as much time and effort and heartache to manage 
and should be treated with respect doesn't have to be romantic. So yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. That's so, I mean, I, I actually thought, I thought a lot about their book when I was reading your book, because I read their book slightly before, but I, I definitely was thinking about it. Is there anything else that comes to mind or just? Okay. So for those who might be interested in, more, in a more kind of um, academic book, I don't know yeah. how many, but there's this book called Asexual Erotics that I quote from. And I just think it's so good because it is, it's a, it's a more narrow than my book, but it is about, you know, what are ways of finding eroticism in our life that's not just the sexual because that's a bit that's kind of a, almost a lazy way to think about it you know where else can you find joy how what does that look like politically so that's another one i would mention okay i like that a lot and then my last question for you is if you could have one person dead or alive read this book who would you want that person to be hmm. i think it would have to be someone who's alive um because i think it's more helpful to people who are alive you know i'm like if this book is gonna you know let let, let me think who would it be it's hard for me to think of a specific person because I just keep thinking of all the random people who make mean comments on. Like, okay, that's okay. So I guess it would be kind of this generalized, like, ace troll. Like, that's who I want it to be because I would hope that they would read and understand why they are dumb. Yeah. <laughs> this is why you suck. Read my book. Angela, this was so great. I just want to say one more time for people listening at home, this book, Ace, is about asexuality. And I didn't read the subtitle before, but I think that I should just because I think it's so great. The book is called Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. And for those of you who are thinking, I like sex, I'm an aloe, I, you know, this book is also for you. This book is definitely for you. It's probably more for you in some ways than other people. But just I think you've done such a great job of of bringing something that we don't talk about nearly enough to the masses in a way that's digestible and understandable and also inclusive. So, so, so inclusive. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me on. This was such a great conversation. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much to Angela for being our guest today. Next week, September 30th, we will be discussing The Undocumented Americans by Carla Cornejo Villavicencio for the Stacks Book Club with our guest, Lupita Aquino. Please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode of The Stacks was produced and edited by Will Sterling. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music comes from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 